Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Ujia-Dean. Today is Wednesday, April 27th. Coming up, the Country Club Plaza is turning 100 years old this month, which has a lot of people wondering, what's in store for the plaza's future? This is such an incredibly unique experience, not just to Kansas City, but to the whole country. Plus, local journalists have played a big role in freeing people who've been wrongfully convicted. But are there enough reporters to focus on the issue in the future? But first, some headlines. The Kansas Senate has voted to override Governor Laura Kelly's veto of a bill that bans transgender girls and women from girls and women's sports. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service reports it would now take an override vote in the House of Representatives to put the ban into law. Republicans in the Kansas Senate flex their majority muscle by resurrecting several bills recently vetoed by Governor Kelly, the transgender ban chief among them. If the House also sets aside the veto and the bill becomes law, transgender girls and women would be prohibited from competing in sporting events designated for cisgender girls and women. Republican Senator Virgil Peck said the protections in the bill extend beyond the fields of competition. We're also protecting these females from having boys in their locker rooms, and in their showers. That kind of thinking, said Democratic Senator Cindy Holscher, is reminiscent of the distant past, when irrational fears of black people prompted bans on their use of public facilities. The Kansas Senate has also overridden Kelly's veto of a parent's bill of rights, giving parents more control over what's taught in public schools. Republicans supporting the measure say some districts have shut parents out of public school board meetings. But Democratic Senator Pat Petty of Johnson and Wyandotte counties says parents already have access to classroom materials and teachers deserve more trust and respect. I've heard today um, parents on one side, teachers on the other. That should be what we don't want to have happening. We shouldn't want to have that kind of division. Now the veto override goes to the Kansas House of Representatives. Johnson County is considering dropping out of its management agreement with the Kansas City Area Transportation Authority to run the county's public transit system. Kyle Palmer explains. Later this week, the Johnson County Commission is expected to vote to formally end the county's agreement with KCATA, which has been in place the past seven years. A staff memo says the move will allow the county to keep a closer eye on some pilot transit projects, including an expansion of some bus routes. Riders shouldn't notice much of a change, according to the county. Buses in Johnson County will remain part of KCATA's route system and still carry Ride KC branding. KCATA's board is also supportive of the move. Kansas City's Country Club Plaza turns 100 years old this month. The milestone finds people examining the iconic shopping center's past and wondering about its future. KCUR's Jacob Martin has more. Try to imagine Kansas City without the Country Club Plaza. Like if one day the entire shopping district north of Brush Creek, with its fountains and stores and people, just went away or became something entirely different. If you don't protect the whole thing, then it'll be gone. There's nothing to protect it from all kinds of development that doesn't yeah. make any sense. Vicki Notice is an architect, urban planner, and spokesperson at the historic Kansas City Foundation. She says change is inevitable, but the wrong kind of change will destroy the plaza's unique character. As the plaza marks its 100th anniversary, 
The district is no longer locally owned. Stores are closing, and a controversial new development is planned to replace a historic church. Ryan Fortney, manager of the local clothing store, Charlie Hustle, says he can't imagine Kansas City without the plaza. I would be heartbroken. I think this is such an incredibly unique experience, not just to Kansas City, but to the whole country. Tanisha Matches wants the future of the plaza to look like businesses like hers. African Americans have been waiting for this moment. In 2020, she opened Matches Boutique. It's the plaza's first Black-owned retail business. It's fun and inclusive, and so far, a success. So when they come down here and they finally see it, I get people that are almost in tears, like, because they knew about the clause or they knew about the truce divide. For all the pride and hopes that Kansas Cityans hold for the plaza, both its past and its future are complicated. To back up a bit, developer J.C. Nichols conceived of the district a century ago as a shopping center for the neighborhoods he was building nearby. But to keep Blacks, Jews, and even people with lower incomes out of the neighborhoods, Nichols wrote restrictions into the real estate deeds. That's what Matches was talking about when she mentioned the clause. Last year, Kansas City's Parks Board voted to remove Nichols' name from a fountain and a parkway on the plaza. That emotional debate took place as the pandemic and other trends were reshaping retail everywhere, with shoppers relying more on home delivery and less on brick and mortar. Right now, more than two dozen plaza storefronts are vacant. People are wondering if the mix of popular national chains and quality local businesses that has defined the district for decades can hold up. Just this month, plans for a new Nordstrom department store were scrapped. And of the plaza's 126 businesses, only 35 are locally owned. But Fortney thinks those hold the key to the plaza's success. The plaza has become an incubator for the local retail, local coffee, local restaurant experience. And that's your go-to place where if you want to support your community, support local business owners, you're coming to the plaza to shop. But staying local may not be Kansas City's decision to make. The plaza has been owned by out-of-town firms since 1998 when the Nichols family relinquished its hold. Ownership is currently split between two real estate trusts that happen to be two of the largest mall developers in the country. And other changes may be on the way. Drake Development, which is local, wants to tear down a historic church on the district's outskirts and replace it with a nine-story structure that would house restaurants, condos, and entertainment, and far exceeds the plaza's height requirement. Robert Martin lives just north of the plaza and is active in his neighborhood association. He thinks the proposed project could open the door to more oversized development. So it really is a domino effect. This isn't, you know, crying wolf. This is a real problem. It's not the change on the plaza couldn't be a good thing. People are just concerned about how you manage that change, which leaves the future of the plaza at its century mark looking a lot like the past, contentious and complicated, and something Kansas City cares about deeply. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Jacob Martin. Learn more about the history of the Country Club Plaza and its creator, J.C. Nichols, on the latest episode of the KCUR podcast, A People's History of Kansas City.
The media's role in spotlighting wrongful convictions has led to a number of exonerations over the years. Stories about the issue remind the public that wrongful convictions need our attention and vigilance. But as the number of local reporters continues to shrink, it's uncertain whether there will be reporters who have time to focus on the issue. KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to CBS News journalist Aaron Moriarty and well-known Kansas City exoneree Kevin Strickland about the media's role in exonerations. Here's an excerpt of their conversation. Well, Aaron, you know, throughout your journalism career, you've been able to report on wrongful convictions and exonerations. Tell us about what it's been like to be covering these kinds of stories over and over again. What other beat do you have where uh, you can actually see something happen? And in the I'd say about 23 years I've been covering these cases. I have watched 10 people walk out of prison and there may be no more exhilarating uh, feeling than that. But along the way, there's a lot of frustrations too. And and Kevin is a perfect example. Um, I interviewed Kevin. uh, I was not the first on his case at all. Kansas City Star did all the great work on this. But um, when I first met him, Uh, there were some questions whether Kevin was going to get out. And Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of ups and downs when you are covering these kind of cases. You know, Kevin, I think you and Ricky Kidd and others who have been on this show over the years, uh, folks who have been wrongly incarcerated and and then ultimately freed, you've said any number of times that you think there are are some of your buddies back in prison who are uh, exactly in your shoes, who are also innocent and are are waiting for their... uh, their justice to come. Yes, there's, I mean, you know, everyone in prison says they're not guilty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, few people, I believe, behind those gates and walls that are, are actually innocent and they're just not receiving assistance from attorneys to have their case, cases brought to the light. They're getting this information because there are not enough investigative reporters willing to invest in that type of research. Aaron, is there any research, is there any guesstimate out there as to how many people are still in prison uh, who are innocent there and deserve to be out? Well, there there is an estimate, and it's higher than what I thought it was um, when I first started reporting on this. DNA and all these forensic types of uh, new technologies have really allowed us to see how often the system doesn't work. And so I think with the University of Michigan, which has been really keeping track of these cases, there's an estimate between three and four percent of the people currently in prison, currently incarcerated, are actually innocent. So you're talking about 40,000 people. Um, You know, the percentage doesn't seem high, but when you really lay it out, 40,000 people, that's a lot. And Kevin's right. There aren't enough reporters who want to do this work, but there's also or lawyers who want to do this work. Much of it has to be done pro bono. Kevin is a perfect example. So in Missouri, um, if you're on death row, you're entitled to um, legal representation longer. But if you are like Kevin and you are convicted and sentenced to life without parole, which is really a death sentence, you're not entitled to the same kind of representation. And Kevin would file his own pro se filings. He filed, his filings were great. Every issue he brought up was eventually the issue that helped him get out when lawyers had it, but the judges didn't take him seriously when he was filing his own 
request for habeas. Kevin, what does it take, in your view, for a case to uh, come to the attention of the media, to come to the attention of an Aaron Moriarty or a Luke Nuzica from the Kansas City Star, who whose work was so instrumental in your release? What's your sense from watching this unfold over the years? Well, it takes quite a few stamps. <laughs> I've heard quite a few stamps reaching out to the media. And finally, I got lucky. But that's what it takes. You just can't give up, and you have to repeatedly reach out to people that are interested in doing that type of work and nonprofit organizations. So that's that's basically all I can add to that is you just have to stay diligent at, you know, searching for someone for that assistance. Kevin, do you know why Luke Nozika uh, uh, took an interest in your case? What was it that grabbed his attention? A lot of people don't know the first name. Big name for me is Ian Cummings. He's a former and colleague of mine down there, you bet. I initially started correspondence with him, and he got a promotion, and he passed it on to Luke. I, I mean, he had interest, and he, I think I guess he said something like, here, Luke, here's a case that I can't work no more because of my promotion. I think it's a good case. And Luke took him serious and, and, and took the paperwork, and right out the gate, that initial email that Miss Douglas, the surviving witness sent to the Innocent Project was enough to strike his interest to dig further. And after a month or so of his preliminary investigation, he was convinced that I wasn't actually guilty of this crime. Huh. He, he dug in with two feet and two hands. You know, Aaron Moriarty, that's a pivotal moment that Kevin is describing there, what grabs the interest of a journalist. You know, you've been a reporter for a long time. I've been a reporter for a long time. You know, you get these letters, these long handwritten letters from from inmates and who are pleading their case and laying out in, in incredible detail why they are innocent of the crime they're in prison for. And you get so many of them that you don't know how to separate, you know, the ones that are worth your attention from the ones that aren't. Oh, see, you really hit it on the head, too. I hate to say that one of the reasons why I did Kevin Strickland's case was, of course, Luke had done the work for me. But also it allowed me to do, because I'm a network reporter, a bigger issue. The fact that the Conviction Integrity Unit with Jackson County had done their own investigation. And so there were really two stories there. So Kevin's case was really an easy one to choose. But I'm like you, I get lots of letters. And I'm going to be honest, it's the better written letters that the ones that I can see the issues right away. I don't have the time to investigate every single one of those cases when I get a letter. So um, early on, one of the first cases I did, one of the most beautiful letters I got was from a California death row inmate by the name of uh, Kevin Cooper. He's probably better known now because uh, Kim Kardashian um, has championed his case. But he wrote me a beautiful letter, um, really laid out the issues. Um, I started looking into it. And he was absolutely right. And, and it turned out to be, I mean, I've done this story several times over the years. Unfortunately, he's still on death row, but the now the governor is doing an innocence investigation. Um, so it's almost luck. I mean, and that's a horrible thing. So what if you are an inmate, you're as innocent as Kevin Strickland, but you're not well written, you don't have family members who are going to fight for you, you haven't gotten the Innocence Project interested in your case, 
you are just as innocent, but probably won't get the attention of a reporter. And um, it's and it's because the appellate system doesn't work properly for innocent people, particularly in Missouri, where innocence is almost irrelevant. Um, and so you're just out of luck. It shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be that someone who is well-written or well-spoken um, gets their case spotlight and not a person who just doesn't have the same skills. Kevin, does it feel like for you it was the luck of the draw? Yes. A simple answer, yes, because I, I have been fishing for 40 years. I mean, almost. I have been fishing for quite a while. So, yeah, it was luck of the draw. And I finally uh, uh, hit pay dirt. Like I say, the piece of evidence that I had submitted for review to Ian initially was a, a, re- a really important piece of evidence. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske, the recently exonerated Kevin Strickland, and CBS News journalist Aaron Moriarty. You can hear their full conversation on Up to Date at KCUR.org. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Ujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love, Trevor Grandin, and KCUR Studios, and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Jacob's story on the Country Club Plaza, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.